It's something about the multiple layers and the brown, crispy outside that just gets me all hot and bothered. In generations past, one could rightly assume that no meal in Texas would be served without biscuits. The majority of biscuits were made in a formula so imprinted in minds of the cooks that it was more about memory than it was a recipe. Flour, salt, baking powder, shortening milk were the ingredients that made these biscuits so much alike, but also so distinct like snowflakes. In the 1984 September issue of the Texas Monthly, Stephen Harrigan writes, most men spend their lives searching for fame or fortune or eternal truths. I spend my life searching for a bit of dough. And he isn't talking about money. He's literally talking about biscuits. It's not a short article, but it's fascinating if you have some time tomorrow. He spends multiple decades searching for the perfect biscuit. It all started in 1955 when he was seven years old, sitting at his grandmother's table in Tennessee. He remembers the screened-in porch and the wind blowing and ruffling up the gingham tablecloth. The platter of fried chicken and green beans and corn on the cob. And then there was a tower of biscuits. A range like building box. And as he broke it in half, each layer he noticed. He says, Sadly, his grandmother passed away before he ever thought to ask for the recipe, not realizing that he may not get another taste of that moment again. He has made thousands of recipes. He has sat with multiple biscuiteers and watched them make biscuits. And while they were good, they still did not compare. He even went to an hypnotist to try to figure out what's going on. And before the hypnotist brought him out of the trance, she instructed him to give a gift to his conscious mind. Allow yourself in the next few moments of each day to relive a taste that has been forgotten. A taste of the buttery goodness, the layers and the flaky crust. Oh, I can't wait for Christmas dinner in the morning. <laughs> You've been there, haven't you? It's probably not about biscuits, but maybe it's another food or another moment in your life that you're trying to relive or encounter again a type of joy in friendships and relationships that you've yearned for that have gone away. The hope of trusting something that would be fulfilled or happen again, and yet year after year we search, and it doesn't seem to come true. 
I bet all of us have our favorite Christmas memory. A memory that we've tried to relive or reimagine again, whether it's implicitly happening within us. And for most years, I feel like this is what the church is doing when it comes to Christmas Eve. Gathering billions around the world on the night Christ was born, setting the stage, bringing the ox and the mule and the cows and the hay, and laying baby Jesus in the manger. Queuing up the lights to be as dark as night, hoping that the candles we light will flicker like the stars in the sky. Seeing image after image of Mary and Joseph riding 90 miles to Bethlehem right as it comes for her to deliver a child. And then shepherds move to the scene and then wise people give gifts. We set the stage every year knowing it won't be like the first time, but hoping in some way that we will get just a little taste of similarity. That something will jog our memory as if we were there that causes goosebumps to rise. The thing is, usually when we want to relive and reimagine moments in our lives, it's usually good or desirable. But it seems year after year, the world has replicated aspects of that first Christmas. As one theologian states, Advent is the gateway to incarnation. When God rethought, as it were, what it means to be God and decided to make a full and unreserved investment in the human world. And so it was that Jesus was born to an overrated Roman empire. That Jesus was born into that world, the same world that we inhabit, a world of misery, misrule, and somehow beauty. A planet on which we make and take out the garbage, do our laundry, and watch in the sky for meteors. Every year we come to the season with persistent darkness and injustice, just all around us. And somehow, that's, that's the taste of the world 2,000 years ago that we get. Right now, Bethlehem is filled with rubble and death, and somehow we're proclaiming life? Last night, the Reverend Dr. Munther Isaac, pastor and theologian in Bethlehem, preached and stated, if Jesus were to be born today, he would be born in the rubble in Gaza. He is at home with the marginalized, the suffering, the disenfranchised, the oppressed, and the displaced. This is his manger in the rubble. And my goodness, have we twisted the meaning of Christmas. And I can't help but think that they send bombs while celebrating Christmas in their land. They sing about the Prince of Peace in their land while playing the drum of war in our land. Often our joys and jollies of Christmas we can push 
past the Advent wonder. But this year filled with hopes and fears and weariness and wonders, we might ask why in the world Advent was made necessary in the first place. You already know this, but one Hebrew word can mean a multiple of things. And the word wait can also mean hope. But linguists suggest that there are a dozen ways of waiting. But there's only one way to hope. But to place our hope in a manger... A hope in the strangest way ever to save the world by using a baby that spits up and burps uncontrollably that can't even contain its own bowel movements. Hope in a child that will rise up and be called Savior and a boy who will dream dreams and lead people that are walking among him. Hope is much different than waiting. We can wait so long that we can forget what we are waiting on, but when we hope... We believe and trust in the one who rose up in the midst of rubble, in the midst of pain, in the midst of destruction, in the midst of darkness, in the midst of death, to challenge an empire, to challenge the oppressor, to challenge the world of injustice around us. Hope. My grandmother often interchanges the word help and hope. I never understood it as a kid when she would say, come over here, boy, and hope me. But as I've gotten older, I have realized that I can find a hope in another that will also provide and supply my help. Yet in thy dark streets shineth, I have hope that there is everlasting light, and I am also going to hope that I can be an everlasting light. My friends, among the darkness, come on and hope with me. That though my hopes and fears of all the years and just this year alone are brought with me, I don't sit in the lonesome, in the dark, but y'all, I am met with thee tonight, the Christ child, the Savior, the one who will rise up, the one who knows what it's like to grieve, to weep, to hurt, but also to celebrate. It may be hard to recognize him, but he's here. We might not notice the manger. We might not see the ox or the donkeys or the mule but maybe there are strands of hay that gives glimpses of him. He's here. And on this eve, we recognize more similarities of the dark nights of Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And, oh God, our prayer is that dark nights will break. Brooks, who wrote O Little Town of Bethlehem, had one more verse that was never published. Where children pure and happy pray to the blessed child. Where misery cries out to thee, son of the mother mild. Where charity stands watching and faith holds wide the door. The dark night wakes. The glory breaks. 
and Christmas comes once more. Amen.